Welcome to This is the North podcast, your source of transformative conversation, an intentional challenge to the systems holding back the North of England. Hosted by Alison Dunn, an award-winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company and is dedicated to curating and sharing knowledge, powering the change we need for a more equal and inclusive society. Welcome to This is the North, a podcast which explores disparities in wealth, health and opportunity between the North and the South of England. My guests today are Liz Mays, Rob Charlton and Joe Curry. If I could ask each of you in turn, please, to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, how you got here and your interest in our topic today. Starting with you, Liz, if I may. Thanks. So I'm Liz Mays. I'm the Chief Executive of The Common Room. We're a heritage charity with a mission to inspire young people into STEM careers using the heritage that sits within this incredible region. I haven't always been in heritage. I moved to this role six years ago from a 15-year career working with national business membership organisations. So I've spent most of my career in the North East talking to businesses that are the beating heart of this economy and felt that this heritage asset that we had on the on the corner of the road was something special that needed to be celebrated and properly looked after. So I took a bit of a leap of faith to go and oversee a big refurb project. And I've been in the northeast for more than half my life now, even though my voice doesn't suggest <laughs> I've visited before. I've got two of my own little Geordies and I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. And for anyone who doesn't know about the Common Room, it is absolutely spectacular and I would encourage you to go and visit. Rob? Hi, yeah, I'm Rob Charlton. I'm Chief Exec of Space Group. We are four businesses, all linked to the built environment. We started off back in 1956, so a very long-established northeast business. I'm an architect by profession in the region that people would know, going right back to the 50s, 60s, Montague Court Tower. More recently, things that people might know, the Crown Plaza Hotel, for example, or other end, something like Close House Golf Club. So that's the architectural side, but then we've got three digital businesses which kind of align with that. Based in South Gosseth, but we have offices in Sydney and in Chicago. Fantastic. And last but not least, Joe. Hi everyone, I'm Joe Curry. I run the Sir James Knott Trust and that's an endowed trust that gives out money to charities in the northeast of England. I'm originally from Lee in Lancashire and I grew up there in the 1970s, 80s, a bit of the 90s and it was when the mills and the mines had closed down to be replaced by diddly squat. It's on the outskirts of Greater Manchester, but it is part of Greater Manchester and it was Andy Burnham's constituency before he moved on. My interest and why I accepted the invitation to come on this podcast was I love listening to them and I've never been on one. (laughs) Um, But I'm really interested in the disparity between North and South. I was speaking to someone at Durham University last week, an excellent young student, and he said that kind of discrimination against working class people from the north is still a kind of acceptable form of discrimination. And I thought, oh, my God, that was the case when I went to university more than 30 years ago. But I thought things might have changed. They haven't. Isn't that sad? And it's one of many themes that we'll be exploring throughout this podcast series. Later on, we have an episode which is about that very thing, actually, about the social mobility of Northeast kids and the fact that only one in five will go on to be high earners and, the, and one in five also don't achieve GCSE maths. So it's quite stark, really. 
Anyway, that's not what today's episode is about. Today's episode is about industrial heritage. So, Rob, if I could ask you, please, to set the scene for us by setting out the main industries that contributed to the industrial boom in Northern England. And if you could, share your views on how these industries have evolved or declined over time. It's a good A-level question, that, isn't it? Isn't it? um, Yeah, it's an area I'm really passionate about and have got an interest. As someone who used to hate history at school, I seem to have got into this thing and, and really got interested. I'm interested in business. I'm interested in entrepreneurship. And then looking back at the history of the Northeast, I mean, the Northeast was, in a lot of respects, the centre of the world at a time. And then my question is, well, what happened? What changed? How did that happen in the first place? How did it become such a centre of excellence? And you look back, you get Lord Armstrong, Swan, Charles Parsons, the Stevensons. And, and when you look at it, they were actually all within quite a short period of time and a lot of them knew each other and they kind of hung out together and they set up the, the Lytton Phil and things like that and, and then look why did that happen when you look back a lot of it started with the coal from coal came steel and then when they had this steel these clever people got together and were entrepreneurial and built bridges and boats and then that steel declined and then it seems that the region has sort of has declined in relation to outside perceptions. My view is I think it's a fantastic region. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. I know there's north-south divide, and in some respects you might say, well, okay, it keeps you off our beautiful coastline and things like that. But we have got an amazing history. You know, Rather than just saying about that's in the past, how do we create a future that does something similar? And how do we encourage young people? How do we build entrepreneurship? How do we create those new engineers of the future and I'm sure the common room and Liz that's a lot of the things that you're working on Mm -hmm. you know the the common room itself is probably from that time must be sort of late 19th century is it the common room 1872 there you are not a bad guess was it Mm -hmm. yeah so that was created at the same time as all of these other guys so what's happening that's a bit I'm intrigued by and I certainly haven't got the answer but looking forward to discussing it Well, you never know. By the end, we might just have the answer to that. But of course, you know, in the northern north, we are concerned with shipbuilding and coal mining. But if you look more broadly across northern England, as opposed to just the very northern north, as Joe's already mentioned, we've got textiles and agriculture. It's true the north of England was the driving force of the Industrial Revolution. The spinning jenny absolutely revolutionised the textiles industry that was invented by James Hargreaves in 1764. And I was always told growing up in Lee that it was invented in Lee. We've got a statue of the spinning jenny, but when I did a bit of research for this podcast, he was from Nottingham. (laughs) (laughs) George Stevenson, he's the biggie, isn't he? Inventor of the steam locomotive in 1829. And where would we be without light bulbs? Joseph Swan, 1860. For sure. And and, and often, you know, we, we do have ideas about what history has told us. And we do think of someone like George Stevenson as being the inventor of the steam engine. But I found, just like you did with your spinning jenny, that he was the perfecter of the steam engine rather than the actual inventor, which was a bit of a shock to me as a who northern in, lass. Who invented it? Oh. It wasn't someone from Nottingham, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it was someone from Lee. So Liz, as Rob's just shared with us, shipbuilding and coal mining industries weren't the only industrial powers in Northern England, but they were nonetheless extremely significant across great swathes of Northern England and Wales. How did these two huge industries affect the lives of working class communities? What were the social and labour conditions like back then? Well, Rob's absolutely right that coal was the the start of it all in terms of the growth of, of the industrial north. 
but it wasn't always a, a straightforward or happy economic progression within communities and one of the reasons the Mining Institute in Newcastle was set up was because there'd been a massive amount of really significant disasters in coal mines. By the time the Institute was set up in 1852 children weren't allowed in the mines and it was illegal for women to go down the mines as well but there were still huge losses of life and that was one of the things that had really triggered these great innovators to get together because they could see this big economic potential of the growth of coal. The demand from London was kind of skyrocketing. They knew it was there beneath the limestone. They couldn't work out how to get to it, but also they had to make it safe. So it was very much this sort of, the kind of industrial greats really who took the responsibilities for their communities seriously but also knew that there was money in this and that the way that they could develop that would be by collaborating and getting together and I feel that sort of you know the small size of the region and the fact that it's it was well connected amongst the industrial community was one of the reasons why we were able to grow and you know it was transformative the coal industry to a lot of areas of the north I think it's very easy to look back through rose-tinted glasses at how conditions were then um, and you know there's certainly been progress since then but there are whole sections of society that grew up off the back of coal mining and you know if you talk to our friends at Red Hills in Durham about the growth of the Pitman's Parliament and the sort of democracy that that brought about the organization of labor that was all off the back of this growth of the industrial revolution and certainly one of the bits of information that i picked up in researching this was that for the miners they received a wage that was adequate to support a family and i think that's one of the differences today actually that wages aren't necessarily at the level that's required to support a family Whereas back then the conditions seemed to recognise that this, you know, the miner was supporting a family and was compensated accordingly. Yeah, and there's, and I'm not an expert historian on this, but we do know some great ones. And one of the things that I've learned since I've been in this role is that there was quite a difference between who owned the mines and the sort of Northumberland mines. There were a lot of Quaker ownership of the mines and the conditions there were better than in the south of the region where the pay might have been higher, but there was much more churn and people would move on. So there were disparities across the region depending on which coal owner you worked for. And a great sense of pride in being a miner. A friend of mine, her dad's a miner, he's still alive, he's in his 90s. But despite the hardness of the work, he recalls his time in the pits as being some of the greatest of his life and some of the stories that he tells and shares about those times of camaraderie, the sense of pride of being there, the longevity of his career, still lights him up even now. Yeah, and I've absolutely seen that. I mean, I'm from Lincolnshire originally, so, you know, it's it's agriculture around us, really. So one of the things that I've really loved about being in the North East is that camaraderie and seeing it and feeling it. It's, you know, it's kind of very tribal, very friendly, inclusive, and it, and it's one of the things I love about the place and one of the things that we can really build on within the common room and our forward-facing programmes to support current northeast industry is that actually every single family that we bring in there has got some kind of link to the mining industry it's somebody that they know about that has got that connection to our building and this place. Joe, I remember from my primary and secondary school education, which was some time ago now, hearing about the great inventors and innovators of the time and just being totally awestruck by the sheer scale of their achievements. I mean, we've mentioned some already, but who do you think were the most significant entrepreneurs and philanthropists of the time? Because obviously philanthropy 
we've already discussed, has played such a significant part in Northern Heritage. What do you think motivated them to get involved to that extent? If I think about Sir James Knott, he died the best part of 90 years ago. He was born in Howden, grew up in North Shields, didn't come from money at all. He left school at 14 and went to work as a shipping clerk down on the quayside. But he had something about him. He had a spark about him and he could see what was going on down at the quayside. And he bought his first boat when he was 24 and he went on to develop one of the greatest ocean liner companies in the world. I think he must have been a bit like the Richard Branson of his day. He went on to own coal mines, got involved in other industry and then I think possibly wanted power because he went into law, he was called to the bar and he also went into parliament. He was the MP for Sunderland for a while. What motivated him in terms of philanthropy, I think, like the critical moment in his life, was when two out of his three sons were killed in the First World War and his third son was missing in action. And I think that knocked all of the stuff in out of him and his wife and they sold their businesses. They moved to Jersey but simultaneously put his wealth into an endowed charitable trust, which some at the time thought was tax evasion essentially but what he has done it means that we're still giving away between two and three million pounds a year to charities in the northeast of england i don't think there's a single community center in the northeast of england that hasn't had its roof or its disabled toilet put in as a result of that wealth in you know in the first place and i think what motivated him fundamentally was bettering himself better in his family and better in his community so he wanted to make sure that people had a great place to live really good job and a place to congregate and so that's what we try and still do now but I mean there's loads of there's loads of examples of this you know the Reese family the Platten family the northeast of England has in Tynan where Northumberland the biggest community foundation outside of North America because people who have made wealth in this place do want to share it I think and give something back. And he was absolutely prolific, wasn't he? I mean, when I've read about him, he's, he's invested in everything from swimming pools to churches through to the RNLI. I mean, there's just touched so many, and at a very local level as well, really, really gone back to his roots. Yeah, and still to this day, you know, every single sea cadet force in our patch has their core funding from us yeah yeah and the amount of investment the equivalent i think was something like 340 million that was invested it's an astonishing amount of money it's incredible isn't it yeah it's now worth about 150 million still in the pot we just spend the income from it every year and rob when we were chatting earlier you mentioned some comparables from modern day northern england some people that you particularly admired that were also investing in the region post-industrialization yeah, it's interesting, but I'll kind of step back because that's what I was saying was a handful of people can make a massive difference in the region. It doesn't take many, so we don't need many of these entrepreneurs if they're you know, very keen to be philanthropic. So a great example is Lord Armstrong. And if you think about the things that he brought to the region and we're also benefiting from now, you've got Cragside, you've got Banborough Castle, you've got Jesmond Dean, he was one of the main founders of Newcastle University through the Armstrong building. So massive impact on the region. And then a look to modern day, if you think of Sage, a modern day success, and you think of the money David Goldman obviously died too young, but his family still give a lot of money away now. 
And the same with Graham Wiley. Graham Wiley has been incredibly successful and made a lot of money out of Sage, but he's basically spent it all in the region and given most of it away, I would guess. So it doesn't take many entrepreneurs to make a huge difference to the region. If we could create more entrepreneurs and you know, even if a handful of them were successful, the impact on the region would be huge. And if it's in 100 years since your trust was set up and still with 150 million in the pot and making a massive difference to the region, that's just one little piece. There's many other things we could do, but it just seems if we could have a few more of those entrepreneurs would make a difference. And Liz, hearing all that Joe and Rob have just had to say there, do you think the values and principles of these great industrialists have influenced what we know today as corporate social responsibility? And are there parallels with philanthropic giving in the modern business world? Yeah, I definitely think those values and principles still are really strong across the business community. I started my career in Newcastle in a SME doing economic research and was only there for a short amount of time but during that time I had the opportunity to kind of get out and meet businesses and and do research and then I, I got the job that I spent 12 years of my career in with the CBI locally and going in as a sort of early 20s young person who didn't really know anything about business but was interested I saw nothing but the positive outlook that the business leaders of the time and and today have for this region the passion and care that they have for their staff and the responsibility they take for what they do and we've got a very sort of mixed bag of businesses in the northeast we've not got loads of massive headquartered organizations and um, we've got a lot of SMEs family owned businesses a lot of kind of foreign-owned companies, particularly in some of our supply chains. But the thing that kind of unites everybody is this passion to see the Northeast do well. And I think, as Robert said, we can see the evidence from how the philanthropy has trickled through. I mean, our, Joe has mentioned some of the key trusts in the region and those individuals have supported our project to get it off the ground. And I do think that definitely is something that sets the region apart from other places. And I I'd certainly felt that when I was in national organisations that the engagement we would get from the business community to put a strong case for the North East central government, for example, was always there in ways that it wasn't necessarily if we were in different parts of the country. So I definitely think we haven't lost that at all. And SMEs are so important, Rob, aren't they, in terms of helping us to recover from what is a post-industrial period in our lives? Yeah, I think SMEs are you know, the lifeblood of, or the beating heart, you see, of business. And sometimes... Bigger business is seen as a bigger prize, but actually SMEs make a massive difference. That's where a lot of the growth comes from, sometimes maybe overlooked. Obviously, we're an SME. Um, interesting, just going back to your ESG point, I'm a bit sceptical, to be honest, about companies that say they're ESG. I think companies that do it mean it and don't need to have an ESG. I think ESG, I call it annual report-ism. The annual report has to have two pages on ESG and they have to have some metrics. But there's other companies. One of my favourite examples, and again, another local company is Greg's. What an amazing company. And I don't think they shout about ESG. They just do it. Mm -hmm. It's in their DNA. And you just know they're a great company. There are many other companies that maybe have an ESG strategy, but do you really mean it? And that, again, another great example, Greg's, from a regional business with a great history, a great ethos and the impact we support breakfast clubs and I don't know if anyone knows what the breakfast club is but basically the Greggs Foundation organise breakfast clubs for schools all across the region and give away the bread and the breakfast what an amazing thing and the impact that has on the region 
So yeah, so just another good example. That's why I'm just slightly sceptical about ESG these days. I think companies should just do it and it should be just what they do. Well, interestingly, I can say with some confidence that Sir James not agreed with you because he had a little mantra and it was action, not words. It was indeed, it was. Can I ask a question though? Do you think there's a risk when we're talking about the miners and the past that we perhaps look back with rose-tinted glasses and that we glorify the past a little bit? Because I think it's absolutely crucial that we commemorate and celebrate our heritage. But I also observe that there are a lot of people in the northeast of England that think that the past is better than the present and is better than what the future holds. And that just causes me such concern. Mm I think that's absolutely fair and there is a school of thought because I've heard it said that those jobs that were lost were not worth having anyway. They were dirty jobs, they were hard jobs, there was lots of loss of life. I think the challenge we have in the North is that certainly some of those jobs have been replaced by jobs that are just not paying sufficiently well. We've replaced what were jobs that supported a family with jobs that don't such as call centre jobs a lot of sort of service industry gig economy jobs which are unable to sustain a family that's one of the reasons i think why hope and aspiration is probably lacking and why there's this look to the past rather than to the future about what's possible yeah i think it's like like joe said rose tinted glasses are, are no good you know there were several jobs women weren't legally allowed to do at that point as well and and that's not something that we would want to see now And I think I'm an optimist generally. And I think my experience of industry before I came into sort of heritage and got to really know the Northeast heritage sector well was that actually there was a lot to be positive about moving forward. So when we talk about kind of industrial decline, that doesn't sit well with me as a term. I don't think the Northeast is in massive industrial decline. And you can see it with the sort of investments that happen and some of the great sectors that are growing. I mean, one of the key things that that drives us to do at the Common Room is make it visible to people because we're in the city centre. So to kind of move our mission forward, my job is to get the likes of Unipres and Caterpillar and Dyer Engineering into the city centre so that young people can see what these opportunities are because it's not just the coal mine or the shipyard at the end of the street that all the men get up every morning and walk out to. They just can't see it, they've no idea what it is and they can't unless we tell them. So I definitely think there's positives moving forward. There are a lot of things that have changed for the better and this region's as well placed as any other to, to make the most of that. This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company. And Rob, has the transformation of Northern England's economy impacted its urban and rural areas differently? So we've heard very much we've focused on cities, we've high populated areas, but what about the rural economy? Has it if we think about those pits that are out in Ashington, for example, you know, we may have replaced some shipbuilding jobs with co- contact centre work in our cities, but we're not going to be able to do that in places like Ashington and some of the far reaches of I think rural the problem with places like that is that they were built around a purpose, which was around serving a, a coal mine. Once you've lost that, what is the purpose of that place? And I think that is really difficult. And I was aware the guy, all the guys putting all the money into in Durham. Bishop Auckland. Thank you. Bishop Auckland. The roughest. So he's putting probably hundreds of millions, if not probably getting close to billions. And it is amazing 
But I just wonder if we come back in 20 years' time, will that be sustainable? I just don't know. It is fantastic. I mean, the, the Kinrin thing they've done, it's kind of world-class for me, I think, some of the buildings and all of that sort of stuff. And that's giving it a bit of a purpose. And a, But will that sustain? That's the thing for me. But it comes back to me, the rural economy, like, this is a great place to live. One of my always things, you know, people in, in London saying, you know, they can't afford to live and houses are really expensive. Well, come up to Ashington. No, no, it. no, don't do that. Why, why not? <laughs> well, of course we want them to come to Ashington. Bring all of your money and bring all of your, you know, your family and all your, bring all of that up here and help regenerate Ashington because there's some great places in the region. And, and certainly some of the great places that we've talked about, like Bamborough Castle and Cragside, I mean, they're still bringing in tourists even now, aren't they, all these years later? So it's, it's a hell of a legacy. It's difficult, isn't it, when you're talking about the North East? Because you want to be realistic and you want to acknowledge the fact that change needs to happen because we're at the bottom of the list that you don't want to be bottom of, like A-level results, GCSE results, you know, top of the list you don't want to be top of like liver disease and unemployment but I used to chair the audience council for the BBC in the northeastern Cumbria and whenever there's a program or a report about benefit cheats or you know people dying of COPD they'll send the crew down to the northeast of England to do the report and I wanted to say like we have aristocrats in the northeast of England we have the finest coastline we have you know wonderful national parks world-class universities a kind of burgeoning middle class but you don't it's not really brand northeast that is it you know whenever the television crews come I like that brand northeast and we've already heard about the important role of the common room in telling the story of, of brand northeast but are there any other lasting legacies or industrial heritage sites in northern England that commemorate the history of these industries in our region Liz? Yeah I mean I, th- I think it, it's all over really in terms of the massive impact of those industries can't be wiped out easily so even if there's no sort of heritage interpretation on for example the north banks of the time where the shipbuilding was the legacy of that is still happening that's why we've got offshore wind oil and gas coming into those places and i think it's as well that we focus on the stories of the people because that's part of the industrial heritage buildings are one thing buildings are difficult Um, heritage buildings are difficult to maintain and keep and make relevant but the stories of the people that built them and built the region will outlive all of that and I think it's sometimes it's about us kind of making sure we're commemorating that if I can just kind of give a little nod to a project that we're just sort of towards the back end of we've just done some work with Newcastle University to diversify the blue plaques around Tyne and Weir and we've got four confirmed and one to go of brilliant women in STEM who have some strong connection to the northeast and those are being put up around different parts of Newcastle and Jarrow and Sunderland and it's just kind of making sure that we're telling telling those stories. But again, it's not with rose-tinted glasses. It's just so we've got a much broader perspective on what made the region as it is, rather than just the statues that we've already put up. For sure. And, and women are definitely underrepresented. When I was researching for this podcast, finding any sort of information about the contribution of women to this subject was really, really tough. In a book, I think that I was lucky if I could find one or two examples of women who had made their mark in this space? Well, Henrietta Heald's book is worth looking at. She did a book that is, I think it's called Women and Their Marvellous Machines, and it was basically about engineers and predominantly Northeast engineers. So Rachel and Catherine Parsons are featured in that. 
so that's worth having a look at for sure so we've talked a lot about the cultural and historical assets that are in our region, tourism, creative industries, but are there any other success stories or examples of economic diversification and revitalisation in Northern England? I think an area, this is all great talk about the past, but you know I'm interested in history, but I'm probably more interested in the future. We have got a fantastic heritage. We've got some amazing buildings, which gives us our core. But I'd look at the future. I think one of the areas that we could build on, and there's a real interesting dynamic between the two, because obviously we were very much around coal. And so we were taking lots of carbon out and we're burning it and creating all sorts of problems. And actually, you know, that I guess if you look at all the stats, this whole carbon issue probably started in the northeast. You know, we were burning lots of coal. Industrial revolution, if it started here, this is where the problem started. So what we seem to be building, and I know... There's a lot of politicians and, and a lot of growth around it, is renewable energy. That would be a great thing for the region. I know there's a lot of people trying to do that. You know, 150 years ago, we were digging a lot of coal out, but now we're really focusing on renewables. I think that's a, a really good area to start building. We've got a great coastline, got a lot of wind, and, and there's a lot of young people. We, we've got a, a young guy that's joined our business as an apprentice, and I quite like sitting down with the young people to try and understand them, because I'm a Generation X and... I really I struggle to understand Generation Zs, and I, I know I have to because they're the, the core of our business, so it's fascinating. I'm still a, I'm not sure if I do. But he'd been pressed to come and join our business by his family, and, and I'm not sure, it's not what he wants to do. But what he wants to be is an engineer on wind turbines. That's his aspiration. His aspiration is to be an engineer on wind turbines. How fantastic is that? Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do. More of those people, that, like the, those young people that are passionate about that, give them the opportunities, create the apprenticeships. And I know we're doing more of that, but that's the future. I, I think sustainable energy is our future. And wouldn't it be great if we could get some of those really clever entrepreneurs in that field that in 150 years' time, somebody, I think it'll be podcasts in 150 years' time, whatever it is, they'll probably <laughs> be wearing some sort of virtual reality or whatever. Whatever the equivalent is in 150 years, they'll be talking about the entrepreneurs from sustainable energy that invested another load of millions in the region. That's where I would like to see us going as a region. That's my thing about, yes, that's what they're doing 150 years ago. How can we be part of doing that now? How can people be talking about us in 50, 100 years' time? And Joe, we've already talked about disparities in educational attainment for our young people. Are we doing enough so that they can be those podcasters of the future? (laughs) One of my favourite examples of people that are getting stuck in is Professor Sir David Bell, who heads up Sunderland University. And there's a huge shortage of doctors in Sunderland. And so they just rolled their sleeves up and they said, we're going to do medical degrees at Sunderland University. And they they got permission to do it. And they are absolutely dead set on developing the consultants and the surgeons of the future at Sunderland University. And I just think we need more of that, really, don't we? Would you agree, Liz? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our kind of area of interest is engineering skills and Uh, nobody's cracked that it's been a problem for about 40 years and it's still a problem but if we're going to make the most of the green energy renewables sector which we're really well placed to do because of the industrial heritage then we've got to kind of make sure we have got that pipeline of young people thinking about engineering and, and going into it but also that we've got kind of diversity of thought going into it. One of the big things we've focused on is supporting more girls and non-binary people into engineering because it's still very male-dominated and still very white. And the reality is we're now trying to solve problems that are 
incredibly diverse and if we're asking the same sorts of people we've always asked we're never going to solve that and I feel like the northeast has got something quite special in how friendly and welcoming it is and how it's always been you know quite international in terms of where we've traded with we've always been too small to do things on our own and I feel like that's that's the kind of USP that we can really attract bright young people to come to the region and and to to network and get involved in things so I think there's a real opportunity there but we've got to kind of make it visible and if I just may on one other point I think you know the automotive sector is a bit of a kind of unsung hero in terms of the impact and what's happened to the northeast economy over the past 30 years you know once mining declined there was no sort of transition into anything else other than the nissan plant going in in sunderland in the mid 80s and the impact of that is still being felt and it's it's meant that we're now well placed to capitalize on some of the low carbon vehicle technologies and and I feel like it's very much dominated by international investment, but it is filtering down to supply chains of SMEs. And just like the philanthropists of the past, they're looking after their staff with, you know, healthcare and training and development. There's parallels, isn't there, Joe? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think it is about building for the future, isn't it? And making sure that people are high skilled and well looked after. And devolution brings some opportunities to us. There's going to be lots more investment in the region as a result of that. So how can community organisations, local government and businesses collaborate to address the challenges posed by industrialisation? Ed Balls has just done a report, hasn't he? And he interviewed, him and his team interviewed former prime ministers, uh, former chancellors, academics, industrialists. And what they seem to agree on is that we need a plan and a structure and we need to stick to it. We can't have all of this chopping and changing of regional policy and we need to resource it. So once we've got the combined authority and we've got the mayor, we need cross-party support and a recognised leader so that we and others can do business. Well... I think that that's a good place for us to stop. All that remains is for me to thank you very much indeed for contributing today and to ask you if you could share with us how listeners would get in touch with you if they wanted to find out more. Rob? Best way for me is through LinkedIn. If you just search Rob Charlton, you'll find us and contact me through there somehow. Liz? Yeah, mine's the same. I love LinkedIn for connecting with people. Uh, But if you search Rob Charlton, you won't find me, so just search for Liz Mays. Joe, if you go to the Not Trust website and you just www.nottrust.co.uk. And is it not with a K or not without a K? With a K. With a K. (laughs) Okay, thanks guys. This podcast is hosted by Alison Dunn, an award-winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. In this episode, we heard from... Former solicitor Joe Curry runs the Sir James Knott Trust, is Vice Chair of Virgin Money Foundation and previously worked for Vaughan, Changing Lives and Citizens Advice. Liz Mayers joined the Mining Institute to lead the £7.1 million National Lottery Heritage Fund bid and resulting restoration works. She became Chief Executive of the Common Room in March 2019. Liz is also a trustee of Tyne and Weir Building Preservation Trust. 
Rob Charlton is a highly accomplished CEO with over 25 years experience in the built environment sector. Also a chartered architect, Rob believes in the transformative power of design to create places that have a meaningful and lasting impact on people's lives.